or on your phone or else grab one in front of you on the tables. We're going to have a look this morning at the book of Acts, chapter 3. So we're on page 1094 in the church Bibles. And uh, we're continuing our current Bible series, going through the book of Acts and looking at the life of the early church. And this morning, we are going to be reading this story of Peter and John healing the lame beggar by the temple gate. So um, let's read this together. Acts 3, 1 to 10. One day, Peter and John were going up to the temple at the time of prayer at three in the afternoon. Now, a man who was lame from birth was being carried to the temple gate called Beautiful, where he was put every day to beg from those going into the temple courts. When he saw Peter and John about to enter, he asked them for money. Peter looked straight at him, as did John. Then Peter said, look at us. So the man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. And taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. When all the people saw him walking and praising God, they recognized him as the same man who used to sit begging at the temple gate called Beautiful. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. There's a story um, that if you've um, engaged with any of the Alpha course, you might have come across because Nicky Gumbel tells this story. Uh, The story is set around the time of the American Civil War. And the story goes that there is um, an American soldier, a Confederate soldier, who at the end of the Civil War is found sat outside the White House, in the grounds of the White House, looking um, completely forlorn and dejected. And a young boy uh, discovers this man and approaches him and asks him why he's feeling so sad. And the soldier says that he's been trying in vain to get an audience with the president, but has been unsuccessful. In the Civil War, he's felt hard done by, he's had land taken from him, and he wants to plead his case with the president. But every time he attempts to get access to the White House, unsurprisingly, he is barred at the gates and the soldiers won't let him in. And the boy beckons to the soldier to come with him. And the boy leads the soldier to the gates of the White House and looks the sentry in the eyes, and bold as brass, says, This is my friend. Let us in. I want to see my father. And the sentry says, Of course, Mr. Lincoln, and opens the gate, and they walk in. The boy was Tad Lincoln, uh, who was the son of Abraham Lincoln, then president of of the United States. There's real power in a name. Names open doors. And if you've ever been the beneficiary of somebody in a position of power or somebody that holds authority or someone that has a name that seems to 
open doors, you will know what that means. There is power in a name. And this is the lesson that the early church are now beginning to learn. And as we travel through the book of Acts, we see that the early church are beginning to learn that there is power and there is authority in the name of Jesus. That the name of Jesus carried a sense of authority. It carried weight. And that authority had now been given to them. When the police force was first formed in this country in the early 1800s, it was formed by a politician called Robert Peel. And so the police were called Bobbies. That's where the name comes from. And um, the Bobbies on the beat would apprehend criminals by calling out to them, stop in the name of the law. It's a phrase that we still hear from time to time. Stop in the name of the law. Because it wasn't that these bobbies in and of themselves had any great power. They were just ordinary men doing a job. But these bobbies knew that behind them they had the full force of the weight of the law and the judiciary and the government. So they were able to call on the power and on the authority of the law to apprehend criminals. They called on a higher power. Our government today, actually, at least in theory, leads and governs in the name and in the authority of the Queen, of the Sovereign. The government is called Her Majesty's Government. And if you've ever watched the state opening of Parliament, the Queen always begins her speech by saying, My government wishes to whatever. The government acts in the name of the Queen. The authority that our Prime Minister and our government has comes from above. And there's a similar thing that actually happens in the Church of England with vicars. If you've ever been to a licensing service, some of you were at mine over at St Andrews last year, some of you will be going to Heather's licensing service in a few weeks' time over in Downley, the bishop confers authority on a vicar. So actually all vicars in the Church of England lead churches in the name of their bishop and with the authority of their bishop. So, Acts chapter 3, Peter and John, here they are, making their way to the temple because it's the hour of prayer. And they come across this man, this beggar, sat at the temple gate called Beautiful. He's probably been there most days. We know that his friends or family carried him out there, positioned him at the gate so that he could beg from those walking into the temple to pray. And he calls out to them for money. And Peter and John don't have any. But they don't walk by. This is what they say. Peter says, look at us. So the man gave them his attention. This is verse 4. The man gave them his attention, expecting to get something from them. Then Peter said, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Taking him by the right hand, he helped him up, and instantly the man's feet and ankles became strong. He jumped to his feet and began to walk. Then he went with them into the temple courts, walking and jumping and praising God. Silver or gold I do not have, says Peter, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, walk. Wow. Just, just picture that scene for a moment. Would you have the guts to do that? Here's someone who is immensely needy and you go, actually, what you're asking for, I don't have, but I have something better in the name of Jesus. Walk. I remember growing up in church, we used to sing an old hymn, which many of you may know, called At the Name of Jesus. 
The verse, first verse says, At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess him, King of glory now. Tis the Father's splendor, we should call him Lord, who from the beginning was the mighty word. And I really wonder, you know, if as the church in this nation and maybe more broadly across Western culture, we really believe in the power and the authority of the name of Jesus. I wonder if we've been guilty at times of underplaying the power of Jesus, both individually as Christians and corporately as the church. I wonder if at times we've lost confidence that the gospel is literally and absolutely true. I think we have. I think the church sometimes in this nation has lost its confidence in the power of the gospel of Jesus. I think too we've lost our confidence in the calling that we have as Christians, that we actually have a mission to go out into the world and to tell those that don't yet know the message of Jesus. I think we've lost confidence that that is our purpose and we need to regain that confidence to act and live and lead and speak in the power of the name of Jesus. Jesus said, Whatever you ask for in my name, this I will do. Do we believe that? Because that's quite a challenge, isn't it? Do we really, really believe that that's true? It's really interesting in that story, in the book of Acts, the position that that beggar is located at outside the temple gate. It tells me something really quite profound, which I want us to unpack. That Jesus works through his church, but his desire is to change lives outside of the church. Think about the location of where that beggar was outside the temple gate. The temple gate was called Beautiful. It's the the gate into the courtyard of the temple. And this beggar is sat critically outside that gate. He positioned himself there as all those walking past him are going into the courtyard, into the temple to pray and to worship. Because according to the theology of the time in um, Judaism, the temple was the location of the presence and the power and the glory of God. So much so that actually the inner sanctuary of the temple was so holy that only the high priest could enter into it, and then only once a year on behalf of the people. Then there was a court where only Jewish men could go, then Jewish men and Jewish women, and then Gentiles. And this beggar has positioned himself on the gate. Later on, when he's been healed, he goes in. But at this moment, he is on the outside. What does that tell us? about how the power of God is at work. It says to me that in this story, and we saw this right from Pentecost two chapters earlier, a chapter earlier, that the power of God has been let loose. Jesus, of course, had claimed that he was the temple, that God's power was no longer confined in buildings, 
but that he came as the embodiment of the power and the presence of God. And from the moment that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the day of Pentecost, the power of God has now been let loose. And isn't it interesting that this beggar is healed, not in the temple, not in the place that's holy, not in the place that's thought to be the dwelling place of God, but on the outside, on the outside of the gate. And Peter and John recognize something really crucial. God is on the move. They recognize that God is on the move, that his power and authority is no longer confined to buildings and to places, but it is spreading, it is wanting out, and it is seeking to save and to heal and to redeem the lost. That the power now of the Holy Spirit has been placed in the hands and in the hearts of ordinary Christian people. One of the things we learn as we walk through the book of Acts is that the Holy Spirit is poured out on the church. The church is equipped. The church is set on fire. The church is filled with power. But the Holy Spirit always wants out of the church so that he can impact and touch the lives of those in the world. The direction of travel of the Holy Spirit is always from the church out to the world. That was the theme of our vision gathering on Sunday afternoon for those of you that were there when we were thinking about what it means for us to be a missional church. What does it mean for us to be a church that is outward focused, that actually realizes that God is not just at work within the four walls of this building, but God is at work within the parish. God is at work within the town. God is at work within the nation. And we are called to join in with the work of God in the wider world. For a long, long time now, the church has had a mantra which has said, you need to come in to us. And that's the message that we've sent to the world. You need to come to our events. You need to come to our services. You need to do life on our terms. And yet what we see of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit's direction of travel is always out towards the world. The Spirit of God is always calling the church to go, to go to the nations, to go to all peoples, tribes, and tongues. So as I mentioned at the beginning of our service, this is why we're embarking at the moment on this new way of being church in missional communities, thinking about what it means for us to actually do life outside of our events, outside of our building, and share the good news with people that are not yet part of our community. Now, it's not that missional communities are some kind of silver bullet by which the church will magically grow and everything will be fine. It isn't. Missional communities are just a vehicle to get us out of the building. That's all they are. There's nothing holy about them, special about them. You won't find them particularly in the Bible, at least by name, but they are vehicles to get us out of the building and to learn how can we be church, if you remember what Kemp said on Sunday, the difference between going to church and being the church, how can we be church 
in the places that we live and work and socialize and where we have our networks? How can we be church in Sands? How can we be church in Castlefield? How can we be church in Downley and in Hewenden and amongst children and young people and families and with football fans and with women on the streets and with those that we live alongside and work alongside and socialize alongside and with whom we have shared interests? How can we be church? The shame and the cultural uncleanliness that that beggar would have experienced would have meant that he would never in a million years have crossed the threshold and walked into the temple court. He did when he'd been healed, but actually because of the culture of ritual purity at that time, his illness, his lameness meant that he would never have felt able to walk over that threshold and go into the place of worship. And Peter and John had the wisdom to recognize that the power of God was breaking out and was healing him where he was. We launched this preaching series um, going through Acts with the words of Jesus at his ascension where he says, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, and to the ends of the earth. The power of God was first poured out on the church in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost, which we read a few Sundays ago. It was proclaimed on the streets of Jerusalem by the apostles, but it was never the plan of God for the gospel to stay in that one place, to stay in that upper room or to stay even in the city. Within weeks, within months, within years, the gospel of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit was being taken to all tribes, tongues, and people groups and within a very short space of time actually it had made its way across much of the known world. So we are now as a church community deliberately shifting our posture. We've had a few weeks of kind of getting getting settled in and knowing what it feels like to worship together and to pray together and we've done some events together and that's been amazing but I want us now as a church to deliberately shift our posture so that we are facing out to our community. So I really want to challenge each of us to commit to being part of these missional communities as vehicles through which we can connect with those that we are living alongside and be church for those that are not part of our number. The power and the authority of Jesus has been given to us. And I just wonder whether we will reclaim that sense of confidence, that we will hold our heads up high, that we will stand tall as Christians and say, we believe that the good news of Jesus really does change lives, transform communities. It really is for everyone. We believe it wholeheartedly and we are giving our lives to it. I wonder if we're up for that.